turn to page 73. And before we get into where we left off, let me just announce a couple of things. One, tonight, 6.30 in this room is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. I encourage all of you to, to come. We do always have a genuinely good time together, uh, so I encourage you to do that if it at all possible. There are some things that we ask you to bring for it. Those are listed in your program, so take a look at that. If for some reason you're not able to bring those food items or, or even a white, a, a white elephant gift, uh, we'd, pr- we'd uh, prefer to have you here more than those items. So if you can't bring those items, come anyway, uh, and you'll still have a good time. But those are the items that uh, we do ask you to bring if you can. And the white elephant gift is a gag gift. Don't spend any money on it. Wrap it. Don't put your name on it. And if there are two of you coming, if you're coming as a couple, one of you, you bring one each. So uh, each person brings a white elephant gift. So that'll be tonight at uh, 6.30. And then after we conclude this uh, class in three weeks, we have today and two more weeks. Then on January the 11th, we will have four weeks uh, outside this room in one of our uh, classrooms where I'll be leading any who want to participate in what we call our newcomers orientation. And as that name suggests, it is uh, an orientation for those who are new to our church. I give you a booklet of material, and over four Sundays during this hour, uh, I go through that material to tell you about us, what we believe, where we came from, uh, why we do things the way we do, what we hope to accomplish in the future, hopefully answer any questions that you might have about who we are. And at the end of that then I leave the ball in your court as in terms of next steps. If you decide you want to pursue membership, then we have in that booklet what the steps for that are, but you let me know that. We don't hassle you with it. I tell you that so that you know that we are being truthful when we say that this is for informational purposes only. So we don't uh, get you in there and then try to strong-arm you in any way to uh, take the next step. We want you to have the information and then prayerfully consider it, ask any follow-up questions, and then uh, see where the Lord leads after that. But if you are new, you want to know more about our church, we offer this three times a year, and uh, I encourage you to take advantage of those uh, four, four weeks, beginning January the 11th. All right, we're going through this series, What's the Difference?, And in the opening weeks of the series, we looked at differences between world religions, in particular Islam. And then after spending several weeks looking at Islam, uh, we spent the last many weeks looking at differences between Christian denominations. And we started that uh, in the year 1517 with an event on October 31st of that year that sparked what is known in history as the Protestant Reformation. And I gave some background as to why there were many who uh, felt the need to protest, thus Protestant, and pursue reform of the church as it had become by the 16th century. But then having laid that out and showing some of the doctrinal issues that underlay that uh, protest, we then uh, began to move back further to see how did we get here. How did the church become this monolith and a monolith really that had had departed from biblical truth in some very important ways such that this reform was needed? And over the last several weeks we've been looking at some church history really as to how that, that developed. And in the process, the Roman Catholic Church became dominant. And how did it become dominant if, contrary to the claims of Roman Catholicism, It is not the original church. It's not the church that Christ founded, that the church was not founded upon Peter as the first pope, as is claimed and as I think we have proven 
If that's not the case, then how did the Roman Catholic Church become so, so dominant? And on page 68, there are some bullet points. If you turn back just a few pages, some bullet points that give some reasons as to why a monarchical bishop would rise to, to prominence and then ultimately that led to what we know as the papacy. But in addition to those reasons, I mention on page 69, at the bottom of page 69 in a footnote, footnote 118, there's a handout, a one-page handout that further gives reasons as to the development of the papacy. That handout, one page, is at our information center. So before you leave today, if you're interested in that, uh, there are 150 copies of that out there, so feel free to take one of those, and that will supplement what we say on pages 68 and 69 about the rise of the papacy. That sheet is out at the information desk. Now on page 73, the power of the papacy during the Middle Ages became so great that the Bishop of Rome, also known as the Pope, became so powerful that he was not only a spiritual leader but a political leader as well. And he was able to hold sway over political leaders in, in other countries. And one of the ways he was able to hold that sway was by use of something that I mentioned last week called the interdict. And interdiction from the Pope meant this, that the Pope would order all of the priests in a particular country to cease offering Mass to the people. And given what we've learned about what the Mass signifies, you can see that it would not take long before there would be a revolt amongst the people, and then the Pope would win whatever political battle was, was taking place. The bottom of page 73 and the top of page 74, we have a couple of historical incident, incidents that show the use of papal power over temporal power. Bottom of page 73, Henry IV versus Pope Gregory VII. Henry was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, came into conflict with Pope Gregory over who had the authority to elevate an individual to a church office. Henry called a council in January of 1076 at Worms. The council rejected papal authority. Gregory met this bitter denunciation and rejection of his authority by excommunicating Henry and releasing all his subjects from allegiance to him. This was as bold a step as any pope had ever taken with temporal power. In the fall of that year, Henry was urged by his people to seek release from Gregory's excommunication or else they would depose him. Henry capitulated and with his wife and baby son crossed the Alps in the winter of 1077 to meet Gregory at Canossa. It was a difficult journey and when Henry finally reached Canossa, Gregory left him stand barefoot in the snow outside the gates of the palace for three successive days before he would admit him to his presence. He then released him from his sentence of excommunication. I guess we know who's boss, don't we? Top of page 74, Pope Innocent III versus Philip of Grants. Philip forced the bishops of France to annul his marriage to his first wife and took another. Pope Innocent ordered Philip to put away the new wife and restore his, uh, his first as his lawful wife. When Philip refused, Innocent placed France under an interdict in the year 1200. The interdict which affected everyone in the nation, closed all churches except for the baptism of infants and the granting of extreme unction, that is, last rites, to the dying, forbade the celebration of the Mass except for those who were sick or dying, and banned burial in consecrated ground. 
The priest was not allowed to preach except in the open air. The uproar that the interdict created all over France forced Philip to submit to the Pope, and he sent his new wife away and brought back his first. Thus, Innocent, by the use of spiritual weapons, had forced the ruler of one of the great new nation states to obey the moral law. And there are incidents like that throughout the history of the Middle Ages that could be recounted that just gives you a flavor of the kind of dominant power that had accrued to the bishop of of Rome in Rome. And before we move on mostly now from our look at Roman Catholicism, I just want to point out something, underscore something that I've not yet in the past. And that is the name of the dominant church is not just the Catholic church. And remember we saw several weeks ago Catholic means universal. So in the second century Apostles' Creed, where it says, I believe in God the Creator, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His Son, and so on. It says, I believe in one holy Catholic church, small c. Well, that's not saying I believe in the church of the Middle Ages or the church as we know it today. It's saying I believe in one holy universal church of all of God's, God's people. The second century, as I said a few weeks ago, when the Apostles' Creed was, was written, the Roman Catholic Church did not, did not exist. So it's not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. But it is called Catholic in Catholicism, capital C, because it's considered to be the one true church. And outside the church, there is no salvation. We've seen those pronouncements from Roman Catholic popes and authorities. So outside of Roman Catholicism, from the Catholic standpoint, there is no possibility of salvation. And thus, it is the universal church, capital C. But it is also the Roman Catholic Church. And don't ever forget the Roman peace. And the Roman peace is important for the reasons that that we have seen. That many of the rites and ceremonies and pomp and circumstance that you see today in the celebrations that uh, are part of Roman Catholicism come from the Roman imperial court. So the fact that it began in Rome and was was affected greatly by the practices of Roman religion prior to the conversion of Constantine, the Roman emperor, in the year 312. And those practices, as we noted last week, and we have quotes in your notes for that, to show that those practices of the Roman imperial court were brought into the practice of the church, and that has continued now for centuries. And then the centrality of Rome as the seat of power then contributed to the ability of the bishop of Rome to become the leader not only of the church but of have political power as well as we've seen. So the Roman peace is extremely important. And when the church is officially known then as the Roman universal church, now that you've taken this class and you see some of the history of that and the effects of Rome upon the church and its practices, then just remembering those names, Roman and Catholic, will help you put in context Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, how it developed and how it arrived at what it is today. Now, before we move full circle back to the year 1517, where we started several weeks ago, and look at then what came out of the Protestant Reformation and some of the denominations that came out of that, there's one more very important historical event that we need to at least give uh, some time to, and that's on page 75 in your notes, page 75. And that is the division of the church between east and and west. We have this long quotation for you. I'm not going to read all of it, 
I encourage you to read all of page 75 on, on your own. But at the top of that quotation from historian Earl Cairns, he says this, When Constantine moved his capital from Rome to Constantinople in 330, he paved the way for political and finally ecclesiastical, that is, church separation, of the church into the east and the west. The church in the east was under the jurisdiction of the emperor, but the pope in Rome was too far away to be brought under his control. In the absence of effective political control in the West, the Pope became a temporal as well as spiritual leader in times of crisis. Emperors were almost popes in the East, and in the West, popes were almost emperors. This gave the two churches an entirely different outlook concerning temporal power. And then if you look at the third paragraph, another difference between the two, East and West, concerned celibacy. And if you read that paragraph... In the Eastern Church, uh, most priests were allowed to marry. In the Western Church, of course, they, they are not. And then the fourth paragraph, the two churches also clashed over, over doctrine. And then, for those of you who want to dig into uh, the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, you can dig into that into the, in the uh, fourth paragraph there. But that was a doctrinal controversy. And then that fifth uh, paragraph says, A series of controversies embittered relations between the East and West. With each dispute, the hostility increased. Last paragraph, the iconoclastic controversy in the Eastern Church in the 8th and 9th centuries caused many hard feelings. In 726, Leo III, as emperor of the East, forbade any kneeling before pictures or images. And in 730, he ordered all except the cross removed from the churches and destroyed in, uh, to, in part, refute Muslim charges of idolatry. So the iconoclastic controversy, a controversy over the use of icons, over the use of pictures in uh, churches and in worship. And in the West, no icons. Uh, no pictures in the east, uh, icons were allowed, and there was this uh, dispute, and you can read more about that. Now, what was the result of all of that? Page 76. <clears throat> the people of the east particularly resented the attempt by Pope Nicholas in the middle of the ninth century to interfere with the appointment of the patriarch of the church in the east. Though Nicholas was not successful, his interference in what many in the East felt was a matter for the East alone intensified the bad feeling between the two churches, and then it came to a head in the development of the Eastern Orthodox Church, a final split in the year 1054. And I want to read this entire, uh, I want to read this entire paragraph. In 1054, the final controversy revolved around what was apparently a minor matter. Michael Serularius, patriarch of Constantinople from 1043 to 1059, condemned the church in the West for the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. Such use had been a growing practice in the West since the 9th century. Pope Leo IX sent Cardinal Humbert and two other legates to the East to end the dispute. The differences of opinion widened as the discussions went on. On July 16, 1054, the Roman legates finally put a decree of excommunication of the patriarch and his followers on the high altar of the Cathedral Church of St. Sophia, which is in, by the way, Constantinople. The patriarch was not to be outdone, and thereupon he anathematized the Pope of Rome and his followers. The first great schism in Christianity broke the unity of the church. From this time on, the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church went their separate ways. The mutual excommunication was not removed until, as you see there, 1965. So that gave rise to then the Eastern or sometimes called the Greek Orthodox Church. 
And Eastern Orthodoxy has a number of ethnic representations of Orthodoxy. So sometimes you will see churches that are the Romanian Orthodox Church or uh, the Serbian Orthodox Church, or you'll see various names. But when you see Orthodox, we're talking about a, a church under the umbrella of Eastern Orthodoxy, but simply different uh, ethnicities. So what are the teachings of the Greek or the Eastern Orthodox Church? Well, on the issue of authority, as indicated in our study of Roman Catholicism, the foundational issue for any church is that of authority. We saw that Roman Catholicism grants equal authority tradition, to tradition and Scripture, and so too does the Greek Orthodox Church. So here is, uh, here is a, a quote from Cairns again. Generally speaking, the Orthodox affirm that the Orthodox churches have kept the deposit of faith undistorted just as the Apostolic Church received it. The Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent declared that, quote, both saving truth and moral discipline are, quote, contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions, and it belongs to the Holy Mother Church to judge the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. Similarly, the Orthodox claim that the content of Revelation has been transmitted in the Scriptures and the Holy Tradition. In the 1962 Almanac of the Greek Archdiocese, Diocese of North and South America, it states this, eternal truths are expressed in the Holy Scripture and the sacred tradition, both of which are equal and are represented pure and unadulterated by the true church established by Christ to continue his mission, that is man's salvation. So on this issue of authority, it is not Scripture alone then. It is uh, the Scriptures and tradition, and in Greek Orthodoxy, that is the same as it is in Roman Catholicism. And then in terms of how is someone saved? How does someone obtain a relationship with God? Bottom of page 76, you see that salvation in Eastern Orthodoxy is not by grace alone, but is by works. And we have a quotation at the top of page 77 from the Christian Research Journal on Eastern Orthodoxy. The means whereby human beings are saved are the sacraments in human effort. The Orthodox stress on the sacraments as the means of salvation lead to the logical conclusion that such is impossible outside the church. Conieris writes, From the church, Christ reaches out to us with the sacraments to bring us his grace and love. Every sacrament puts us in touch with Christ and applies to us the power of the cross and the resurrection. Thus, salvation is possible only in and through the church because the church and the sacraments are the way to God for the church is an absolute reality, the body of Christ. So you can see the similarity, uh, almost, ident almost identical to Roman Catholic teachings. And the split was then over some doctrinal controversies, the iconoclastic controversy, some of the things we have listed. But primarily it was a political split. And you had a headquarters in Rome and you had a headquarters in Constantinople. And thus you had uh, the split into east and west. That brings us then as I said, full circle to the year 1517 and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and this is where then we started. We've given some history as to what led up to the need for reform within the church and the doctrinal uh, aberrations that had accrued within the church over the centuries. And now out of the Protestant Reformation developed denominations. People of goodwill who were concerned about the doctrinal uh, the doctrinal departure of the Roman Catholic Church from scriptural teaching, 
protested and ultimately left the Roman Catholic Church and thus developed some of the denominations that we know about than today. So I have on page 77 denominations from the Protestant Reformation. I'm just going to list these for you now, and then in the next couple of pages, we'll get into a little more detail about, about them. But you had the Reformation occurring in different places. The Reformation occurring in Germany, you see A. B, the Reformation in Switzerland. C, the Reformation in, in England. So you had different geographic areas, all of which were experiencing protests against Roman Catholicism and ultimately ended up splitting away from Roman Catholicism and starting a Protestant protesting groups. In Germany, that protest was led by Luther. So the October 31, 1517 event that we started these notes with back several weeks ago was this Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther, nailing 95 grievances to the church door in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. And those 95 grievances, uh, 95 theses, they're called in history, uh, were mostly about the abuse of indulgences. And if you were with us several weeks ago, we've looked at what indulgences are and how they were used to release people from purgatory and how they were sold and, and the abuse of that. And Luther finally was fed up with that, and uh, he, he protested. Now, that was just kind of a last straw for Luther. In fact, Luther had been studying for several years uh, the Book of Romans on salvation. And he was having some grave concerns about what the church taught regarding how one has a relationship with God. And by his own testimony, a phrase that he kept reading in places uh, in the Bible like Romans and in Galatians, that the just will live by faith, haunted him. Because the church he was in, it was not about faith primarily or faith alone, but it was about works primarily. That was his experience. And so this emphasis upon faith in the salvation of individuals haunted Luther, and then he saw the abuse of a works-oriented approach come to its apex, really, in the sale of indulgences, and that finally propelled him then to nail his 95 theses to the church door. I say in the notes here, it was not his intention to begin a new church, but rather reform the existing church. However, after his refusal to recant his writings in the city of Worms in 1521, he was excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church. As a result, Luther faced the need to develop doctrine and organization for the church in Germany. There is this famous uh, meeting in the city of Worms, Germany. It is called the Diet of of Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S, so do with that as you will. The Diet of... So pr pronouncing the W as a German is, is important, okay? The Diet of Worms is not as good as the Diet of Worms, okay? And this was the meeting, and Luther is told and is screamed at that he must recant his views. And he makes this uh, famous uh, stand, literally. He's standing before uh, these officials of the Roman Catholic Church who are screaming at him and insisting that he recant. And he stands before them and he says, uh, my conscience is bound by scripture alone. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's what he said. And there's actually a plaque 
on the floor at the place where that happened that says, here stood Martin Luther. Because those famous words, here I stand, I can do no other. And so uh, with an excommunication and the fear of frankly death upon him, uh, he nevertheless followed his conscience and left the Roman Catholic Church, was forced out of the Roman Catholic Church, and now had to organize the church in Germany. He had to organize it in particular in two ways. What would the government of the church be, you see there, and then how would worship take place within the church in a reformed way, in a way that did not have the abuses that Roman Catholicism had developed over the centuries. And the same thing faced the reformers in other geographic areas. In Switzerland, where the Reformation was led by Zwingli and Calvin, you see their names there, and they too had to deal with church government and worship. And then the Reformation in England, uh, Anglicanism led by the king, and I'll talk about the king in a moment, Likewise, church government and worship. Now, I'm going to look at the church government solutions that Lutheranism and uh, the reformers in, in Switzerland came up with and in England. Those are on the following pages in just a bit. But before you turn there, at the bottom of page 77, notice the mention of the Radical Reformation. <clears throat> and the Radical Reformation is in quotation marks. And it says next to that, Anabaptists. Anabaptist means rebaptizer. And that was a name that was given to those who were part of the reform movement, but who had come to the conviction that baptism was for believers only. Believers' baptism, not infants. And as a result, they insisted that those who had never been baptized after coming to faith be baptized. So they were called derisively rebaptizers. So the term Anabaptist was not a flattering term. Uh, and it was not a term that they used for themselves. It was a term that their detractors used of them, saying, You're saying somebody has to be rebaptized. And they insisted that the subjects of baptism, the people who were eligible to be baptized, were only those who had come to personal faith in, in Christ. Now, they were called the radical reformers because that was taking it further than the other reformers were willing to take. So one of the things that all of the reformers in Germany, in Switzerland, and in England had in common was they continued the Roman Catholic practice of infant baptism. But the radical reformers would not do that. The radical reformers were hated then by the reformers. And many of the radical reformers, Anabaptists, were killed for their stand by, guess who? Reformers. And what, they were killed in a number of ways, but one of the ways that they were killed was by drowning. Guess why? Because of this emphasis on baptism. You want to emphasize baptism? We'll emphasize baptism. Okay? So it was th- this issue of the subjects and then the mode of baptism, friends, is no small matter. It is no small matter historically. People actually died over this this issue. So we are convinced, I am convinced, that the Bible teaches that the subjects of baptism are only those who come to personal faith in Christ. 
that Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing disciples. So the people who get baptized are disciples. And then there is no example in the entire New Testament, not one, of anyone other than someone who has come to personal faith in Christ being baptized. And then the mode by which they are baptized, again, we are convinced, is by immersion to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ. And that is how people were baptized, again, in the New Testament. So it's a, it's, a, it's a large matter. It was a large matter historically. And I say that for the benefit of any of you who might be thinking about that issue uh, to, to stress that it is an extremely important matter, biblically and also historically. And if you have further questions about that, then I'd be happy to try to help you with that. Now with that, turn to page 78. Protesting the Protestants. Because, as I said, there became then this uh, controversy within those who were protesters of Roman Catholicism about some of these matters regarding church government in particular and uh, worship, liturgy uh, uh, as well. And I would suggest to you that if you want to know something about where a church is coming from and what its roots are, those are two of the best places for you to start. With the way the church is organized, what is the government of the church? And then what is the worship, the liturgy of the church? What does it believe about the sacraments or, as we call them, the ordinances of the Lord's table, baptism? That will give you a clue as to where that church has has come from. Now, hopefully what I say here will help you see why that's the case. Page 78, top. We've seen the early development of the Protestant Reformation in Germany, Switzerland, and England under Luther, Calvin and Zwingli, and then Henry VIII in England, respectively. In each of these lands, the distinctive elements of church government and worship gave shape to the denominations that grew in them. We now survey the various forms of church government, as well as the issues surrounding both polity, that is government, and worship that gave rise to further denominational division within Protestantism. So these two issues, how the church is organized governmentally, its polity, and its worship, how it views the sacraments, were two central issues for how then different denominations came to be. So here's the three principal types of church government. The monarchial, the Presbyterian, and the congregational. A monarchial form of church government is what I say there. It's governed by a single ruler. Examples of this are Roman Catholicism and the Episcopal Church, or otherwise called the Anglican or Church of England. So let me stop there and give a little bit of information then about the Reformation in England. I said on the previous page and up also at the top of page 78 that Henry VIII played a role in the English Reformation. How so? Reform is taking place in various lands throughout Europe, in particular in Germany and Switzerland, and now in England. Henry is the king. Henry wants to divorce his wife and marry Anne Boleyn. He, uh, but the Pope will not grant him a divorce. So Henry decides to remove England from the Roman Catholic Church and start the Church of England. So to this day, the church in England is called the Church of England. But the beginnings of the Church of England were about 
Henry's desire to divorce his wife. I'm not making that up. In America, in, 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 uh, in America, the Church of England, also known as Anglicanism, the Anglican Church, is known as the Episcopalian Church. So if you see a church that says Grace Episcopal Church or something like that, that's the American version of the Church of England. And it started, as I say, with Henry VIII and his desire for a, a, a divorce. Kind of an inauspicious beginning to a church. And in England, the church and the state have, have long been wedded. In fact, the queen, uh, the queen's crown has a cross on top of it. If you ever see the, the monarchical crown in England, it has a cross on top of it. There's a fusion of church, historically have been a fusion of church and, and state. So that's the Church of England, and we're going to see in, on the next page that the church in America was greatly influenced by that. Because, remember, our forefathers in America came from where? Came from England. And many of them came to America to leave persecution by the Church of England and came to America and then started some of what we see then in America. We'll look at that in a bit. So a monarchical form of church government is a single ruler, the pope, the, the king in the beginning of the uh, Church of England, and then the leader of the church directly in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anybody ever heard of that? The Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is the leader of the, uh, the religious leader of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, Episcopal Church in, in America. But that's a monarchical form of church government. Then there's the Presbyterian form of church government. And in that, as I say in the notes, the church is governed uh, by a body of elders. That's uh, the same word for presbyter in your New Testament. So presbyteros is a Greek word that's translated elder in English. So the church is governed by a body of elders or presbyters. Now, here's what's important, at least for my purposes that these elders not only rule inside the church but outside the church as well. That is, there's a, body of, there's a body of elders within each local church called the session. But then there is the presbytery that is a, a body of presbyters that oversee the church is. So notice the churches are not self-governed. The churches do have their own governing structure, but then that governing structure is under an extra church, outside the church structure as well. Now here's why that's important, at least to me. You see, the third form of church government is congregational. In congregational government, the church is governed by the membership. Examples of, of this are found in the Baptist and other independent churches. So I've tipped my hand here as to what I understand the Bible to teach about church government, that, that churches are, are autonomous, that is self-governing, that's what autonomous means. And you don't have a body in scripture outside of the church that oversees local assemblies, that each local assembly governs itself and the congregation of that assembly 
is actually uh, the governing body of that, of that church. Now, the Bible gives two church offices, those of pastor, which is also elder, which is also bishop. I told you that a few weeks ago. Those are synonymous terms in the New Testament. But ultimately, it is the church congregation, the membership of the church, that is the government of the church. And the church elects who its leaders are going to be. So I was elected to be the pastor of this church. I can actually be removed by the membership. I'm not going to say any more about that. I'm just going to move on, okay? <laughs> I don't want anybody to get any more ideas, okay? But the other leaders of our leadership team, the deacons, they likewise are elected by the, the church membership. And there is no body outside of our church that dictates anything to an autonomous local body. That's what I understand the New Testament to teach about the government of, of the church. But you have these different kinds of church government that came out of the Reformation. And that's one way for you to get an idea as to the roots of a particular church if you look at how it's governed. Does it have something, somebody outside of itself? Now, there's monarchical, uh, as I say, there's Presbyterian. And the Presbyterian church, by that name, obviously practices that kind of government. Thus the name. But in a sense, our Lutheran friends have a similar kind of thing, a set of government. Because outside of each local church is something called the synod. And the synod has representatives that also have then governing oversight power over the, the local churches. So when we say Presbyterian here, we don't mean that churches with the name Presbyterian on them are the only ones who have a Presbyterian form of government. That's simply the name for that type of government, and other churches have it and then have their own distinct version of it. Lutheranism would be an example of that. So these are just the three major categories, and they come then in different shapes and forms. Those are the forms of, of government. And then the significance of the sacraments for worship, for liturgy. We've seen that the Roman Catholic sacramental system is one whereby the individual works for his salvation. The reformers, such as Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, were all former Roman Catholics who had to struggle with the relationship of the sacraments to their view of faith alone. Now, just think about what I said there. Because that, I think, gives you some insight into the thinking of Luther and of Calvin and of others who were now tasked with something that they hadn't planned to do. They hadn't planned to start a new denomination. But Luther was excommunicated. But Luther was his entire life Roman Catholic. So Luther is now carrying with him into these reforms all of his Roman Catholic background. So his insistence upon infant baptism comes from his background. And you will see some similarities, not identical for sure, because Luther considered, ultimately determined, that the Roman Catholic celebration of the Mass as the literal body and blood of Christ was, was blasphemous. But nevertheless, uh, the celebration of the Mass held a very uh, important place in his heart. And so his view uh, of communion was undoubtedly affected by that. And his view I have listed for you <clears throat> on page 78. Communion involves, according to Luther, consubstantiation. Yikes. So do you all remember the name that Roman Catholicism gives to its view of the elements, the bread and the, and the wine? Transubstantiation. 
So the substance is trans, is changed into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's transubstantiation. That is the Roman Catholic view. The Lutheran view is consubstantiation. Con means with. With. So the the substance of the body and blood of Christ are with the bread and the wine. Now, I've done reading in Lutheranism. I don't know what that means. I read Lutheran theologians, and I can't make out what it means from them. That the body and blood of Christ are with the bread and the, and the cup. But that's what Luther, Lutheranism teaches, consubstantiation. Now, what's important for me, then, since I don't know, I'm just admitting to you, I don't understand what our Lutheran friends mean by that. What they don't mean, I do know that what they don't mean is two things. They don't mean it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ and that Christ is being recrucified as in Roman Catholicism. They don't mean that. So that's good. But they also don't mean that this is a symbol, a memorial. It's something more than that. So it's kind of a halfway house. And I don't mean that to be derogatory. It's just... Luther's coming out of Roman Catholicism, transubstantiation. He believes that to be blasphemous, and he teaches something called consubstantiation. Now, Calvin developed his view of, again, Roman Catholic, Calvin. But he comes out of the Roman Catholic Church, and he develops uh, his view of communion, and he says it involves the spiritual presence of Christ. And most of your Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, churches that come out of the Calvinist, uh, the Calvinist stream and adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646, most of them have the real presence, it's called the real presence of, the, of, of Christ, the spiritual presence of, of Christ in the, in the elements. So again, it's not merely a memorial, it's something more than that, but it's much less than transubstantiation. And then you have Zwingli. Zwingli took the memorial view. That's the view that our church takes, that communion is a remembrance. It's a memorial of the body and blood of of Christ. And that the the bread remains bread. And that the juice, in our case, remains juice. But it's representing uh, the body and blood of, of Christ, a memorial, a remembrance of that. With baptism, all of our former Roman Catholic friends uh, had a view of baptism uh, that was uh, different than the view that I believe the Bible teaches. Luther, you see there at the bottom of page 78, said baptism has a mystical power. Baptismal regeneration, that there's actually a regenerating, life-giving power to baptism. Calvin Uh, taught that baptism doesn't have a life-giving power, but it enters one into the covenant community. In church history, this idea has created just great problems for those who have adhered to it. Because people are often confused as to whether or not, does this mean I'm a Christian? That I've been baptized into the church? Does this mean I'm a member of of the church? And if you 
are ever bored and you want to look up one way that this began to affect the church, you can uh, read about something called the Halfway Covenant. Halfway Covenant. And this issue became such a, a large issue in certain Reformed churches in America that they came up with this idea of a Halfway Covenant to determine whether or not people who had been baptized but hadn't expressed personal faith in Christ were members of the church or not. Now, Baptists, of which I consider myself one, Baptists believe in something called saved church membership or a regenerate church membership. That is, you can't be a member of the church unless you are personally saved, unless you've been born again, unless there is evidence that you've been regenerated. And that's why when three families joined our church today, and like when anybody joins our church, I say to the congregation, we have heard their testimony of salvation and that they have followed the Lord in baptism. Here's why. Because those people have to give evidence of a credible testimony of having been saved in order to be members of the church. Now, there's no foolproof way for human beings to keep unsaved people from being members of the church. But from a human standpoint, as God allows... The best that we can do is to get a credible testimony of salvation and of baptism to try to ensure that those who are member of God, members of God's church are genuinely born-again people. And biblically, it is only born-again people. It is only people who have been called out of the world. That's what the, church, the word church means, called out. Those who have been called out of the world into God, they're the only people who can be called members, validly be called members of God's church. And so... We don't want the confusion of infant baptism as to whether or not someone is saved or part of the church community. You become a part of the church community when you become a part of God's family, and you become a part of God's family when you're born again. But that's what our Reformed friends, then, brought with them out of Roman Catholicism. If you turn to page 79, we will look next week a little more at the Church of England and then see how that was, those things I just talked about were imported to America and how that's affected the present-day denominational landscape for us, okay? All right, we've got to quit now, so let's pray, and uh, we'll gather together, Lord willing, next week. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have gathered as your people and to have heard your word and to submit ourselves to it. We thank you for the celebration of this day particularly, centered around the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. Lord, we thank you for this week and its events. We thank you for all that surrounds the celebration of Christmas for most of us, with family and friends and gifts and expressions of love. We thank you for those traditions. But Lord, help us to do what we said uh, in our first hour. Help us to focus upon what Christmas is really about. It's about you. It's about who you are. It is about your glory. Help us to think upon those things then this week. And Lord, as we look at these issues with regard to how you have guided history, including church history, and you have brought us to our present day, help us to have a clear view of who we are, who you want your people to be, so that we can move forward with confidence and upon the basis of truth in order to evangelize, in order to bring folks to you, in order to see folks grow in you. We ask you, Lord, now to go with us this week. Grant us a blessed Christmas week, safety, and the opportunity to return again next Lord's Day. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.